we're kind of trained nowadays to think, okay, well, you know, we've got to get that amazing nine to five job or whatever it is and get, get, get a mortgage, get the house, get the car and, and then get the partner and live happily ever after. And, um, actually change the, as the cliche goes, change is obviously inevitable. Um, it doesn't go in straight lines. That's another myth. Um, we go through periods where it kind of looks like manageable change where things are going in straight lines or plateauing. And then we go into periods of non-linear change. Hi there. I am Abigail Croft, co-host of the Bridge Breakthrough podcast alongside my colleague, great friend, Scott Taylor. Every episode, we sit down and have a chat with inspirational change leaders from around the world. We hope our podcast provides insights, inspiration, and ideas that can support you to create change for yourself, your organization, and the world that we all share. This episode, I sit down with Benjamin J. Butler. Benjamin is a father to five-year-old daughter Gaia, who he believes is his best teacher. He's also passionate about the holy grail of finding your true self spending a month each year frequenting Zen retreats, temples, Himalayan hideaways, and other sacred places which evoke the more spiritual dimension. Benjamin is an avid hiker, skier, and plans one day to return to triathlon. He's also a futurist, strategist, and philosopher. He's a member of the Global Future Council on Quantum Computing at the World Economic Forum, a futurist with the UN's Resilience Frontiers Initiative, a member of the faculty of the Future IO, the European Institute of Exponential Technologies and Desirable Futures, a member of the Futurist Board of the Lifeboat Foundation, and we're fortunate to have him as a futurist in residence here at Bridge Partnership. This year, he launched a new unconference series called Future Explorers, Before becoming an independent futurist, Benjamin has worked at an array of investment banks, hedge funds, and established his own venture capital firm. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Benjamin. Welcome to the the podcast. Great to have you on board. Thank you. Delighted to be here. (laughs) Great. Um, You know... With all of our guests, I think it's really important that uh, before we jump into the to the it of it, into the, I guess, the the deeper depths of the where we'll go with our conversation, I'd love to just get to know, get to know you better, have our listeners understand uh, who you are, where you are, and all of that good stuff. So why don't we start there? Why, where are we finding you on this fine day? Uh, well, I mean, uh, what looks to be, it's, it's a little bit early still, so we'll... we'll not sure of the weather yet, but it looks like a, a sunny Hampshire morning um, in the UK. Just spent a couple of days in uh, in London. Um, as you know, I'm kind of based out of Hong Kong, but tra- travel the world doing my talks and, and, and work. But uh, yeah, in the UK at the moment, uh, just in time for coronavirus to, to hit here and uh, ca- cause mayhem, but uh, all all is well. Nice. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time. And I'm sure we're going to get into that of, um, you know, especially talking to a futurist about not only what's happening now in the present, but how that influences what's coming down the pipe. Um, maybe for our listeners that, I mean, I just introduced you, but I, w- I would love to, in your own words, maybe 
explain who are you? Um, yeah, give us a little picture. Paint us a picture of, of who Benjamin J. Butler is. Okay. Um, well, I was uh, born in the Royal Berkshire Hospital, uh, the same hospital as Princess Kate. Uh, and as I like to say, that's where all similarities seem to end. But um, uh, moved to Hampshire when I was uh, fairly young, went to school uh, here, uh, boarding school, and then um, uh, read law until I got bored of that at King's College in London, uh, switched across to study Japanese and economics because uh, I wanted to travel the world and go on adventure. Um, and Japan had this sort of very mystical side to it. And I intuitively thought perhaps it had the culture that was perhaps most removed from my own. That's certainly a lot different. Um, sometimes I say maybe it's because I, I read too many sci-fi and fantasy novels as a as a child and my uh, inner Tolkien wanted to take me off to some mystical place but uh, I actually my pathway that there apart from doing a year as a student um, my pathway to Japan was actually through Wall Street so um, I, I worked um, worked uh, an American investment bank um, briefly in on Wall Street and London and then uh, because I spoke Japanese I was sent off to um, to Tokyo. And then um, I spent a career essentially between the US and Asia. Uh, uh, but um, I've always had a base in Asia. So mm. not not ever quite made the move to, to live in the US, although I, I, there were periods where I was doing a lot in the US. Um, so spent a lot of time in the investment community, uh, either as a stockbroker recommending to investors where they might allocate their money uh, and also as an investor myself and um, learn a lot from that. Um, really, it, it gave me a lot of tools to become a, a futurist. I um, I remember um, there were two, if I'm not sort of going into too much detail. Uh, Feel free. I mean, that's, yeah, we've got some time and space. And I think uh, if I can just say that getting to know, you know, the the workings and the makings of of people I interview I think is really important because it it sets the picture the foundation of what you're doing now and um, and how it influences the work that you're doing for sure would love to hear it great um, you know I, often when I um, I'm, I'm sometimes a bit reticent to go on and on about my life story but sometimes it's actually useful to go I found and I find that when I hear other people that you hear their life lessons along the way and it, it just becomes a bit more real than speaking at a, a theoretical level. Um, so the, the, I had a couple of mentors early on in my finance career um, and I remember one of them, uh, he was, I guess he was a little bit upset that such a junior person had been appointed his counterparty at, at the bank I was at and he was this veteran hotshot uh, fund manager and um and uh after getting over that he said look look kid it's not your fault um that the the bank made this decision but if if you want to be useful to me and maybe to yourself uh and maybe this might even make your career just follow this piece of advice he said so take a notebook and every investor you speak to during the week of course 
do what you have to do and say what you have to say, but as much as possible, just shut up and listen and write down their thought process. You know, how do they make decisions? What's on their mind? And at the end of the week, I want you to look at that notebook and see the collective thinking, almost the collective consciousness of the market. And I want you to call me up and tell me what's going on. And of course, I don't want to know um, any sort of inside information, front running, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to get a, a, a map. And um, that was really useful to me uh, because I started to realize that thought preceded reality. And George Soros, who uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Alchemy of Finance on this very topic. And the um, subtitle of the book was called Reading the Mind of the Markets. Hmm. And it was, um, and I remember when it came out, and uh, I think it was in the 1990s, uh, many of the big publications, uh, I'm guessing FT, Economist, etc., most of them uh, didn't write great articles. They, they said, uh, look, look, George, all we want to do, all we want to know is how to make money. <laughs> You're, you're, you're an investor, you're not a, a philosopher. You're trying to leave a legacy as some great philosopher and you know it's not gonna work. And they missed the point because um, I realized to be a good investor and to be good at many things, one has to understand the workings of the mind. Mm. And um, so I kind of, my, I use my, I, I guess to a certain extent, I use my financial career as a laboratory for the human mind um yeah and on a one-on-one -on -one basis when i was interacting with investors often you had to be a, a bit of an amateur psychologist because you know people are dealing with intense emotions as they are now mm. i mean yesterday you saw markets across europe all plummet 10 percent it's pretty tough to deal with when you you have a fiduciary responsibility to your clients mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, the other piece of advice I learned, which was very relevant, I think, to my role as a futurist today and, and trying to forecast where the world might be heading, was, uh, was the notion that history is not linear, as often it's taught in school. Hmm. It's, it's cyclical. And um, you see, because, in, particularly in the West today, most people think history you know some people say oh yeah history repeats itself but we're not really taught it that way um and so we don't see so much utility in history it's not considered mm -hmm. by many maybe it's making a little bit of a comeback recently um you know with certain podcasters and etc uh, and and that's the exciting thing about the age in which we live although there's a lot of absolute nonsense out on social media that there's, there's so much more, there's a lot of creativity now at this time of, of history. So you've got these quite, quite innovative bloggers and podcasters that talk about history and science and all sorts of things, but history typically wasn't considered so much of a sort of a, a tier one subject at, at school. But I came to realize it was perhaps one of the most important subjects because history does repeat itself. and. On, in a simplistic way, you have the business cycle that often people say kind of plays out over seven, 10 years, 
every seven to 10 years, mm. but there are much longer cycles. Uh, in fact, one of the greatest economists uh, of the last century lectured all over the world uh, and no longer appears in any of our textbooks was a Russian called Kondratiev, who would talk about uh, Kondratiev, well, they, they call it Kondratiev cycles, hmm. these big, long cycles that would play out across technology. And um, and you, you see it in so many different spaces. In, in There are cultural cycles. You, you can map out what happened in the 60s and 70s when we all got a little bit hippie and new agey and went through another cycle and now it seems to be coming back. But um, just to, just to br bring that, well, in my financial career, when talking to the best fund managers, particularly hedge fund managers in the world, these guys take cycles incredibly seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, the, the general public often doesn't get access to their thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not so widespread. But there's a fund manager called Ray Dalio, who's um, uh, for many years, he didn't, he'd get on CNBC, but he wasn't that active. I've always followed him because he, he thinks like a lot of my former friends and clients um, thought, but um, he, he's very vocal nowadays and he talks about cycles to a certain extent. Um, but if you look at the American election, the last election, there was a book that um, influenced uh, Steve Bannon, the chief strategist in the White House and, um, and many others, um, not, not just those that were pro-Trump, but there was a book called The Fourth Turning, which talks about uh, cycles in Anglo-American history. So it goes back to, 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 to the beginnings and um, talks about these cycles that that happen every every generation and and essentially their point was culturally uh every 20 years you go through a, a new season and uh, they use they use the four seasons as a as a sort of a, a metaphor and the suggestion was that around 2000 and well they, they wrote their book in the 90s and they were predicting forwards that that the us and therefore the UK would go through a, a, a winter by about, I think, 2005, 2010. Um, and of course, the great financial crisis kicked off in 08. And um, we've been going through a very chaotic period of, of human history, and it's accelerating. Hmm. And uh, funnily enough, that book uh, fitted in with a lot of my models as well in terms of dates. But uh, that that's a, a rare example of a two Western historians coming together and writing a book about cycles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And having a pretty somewhat, by the sounds of it, accurate um, prediction or, you know, future generalization that's kind of manifested itself. Interesting. Um, I'm, I'm, before we jump more into that, because I'm definitely interested to, to know more of, yeah, just that, the, the cyclical nature, um, and all of that, I really want to come back to you. Um, so that was that was a nice story. But as Benjamin J. Butler, um, futurist, if if that's the title, the moniker that we're going to associate with you, um, what are three things? I love to ask ask this question in the beginning um, that are at the heart of who you are as a person. How would you sum yourself up in three buckets, if you could? Um. 
Well, that. Or what's important to you or kind of values or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, for me, if I think about my past, you know, I went through these different phases. Uh, I will answer the question. I might go off piste a little bit and then uh, come back. But um, uh, you told me we had a bit of leeway on the on yeah, this podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like the first phase of my career was very much, um, you know, I always tried to do the best for my clients, etc. Um, and, and I was, I, I was pretty motivated. I, I had my career aspirations. Uh, but then in, by about 2011, I'd internally burnt out. Uh, physically totally capable of continuing a fast-paced career uh, but um, I just woke up and it was like the inner fire had 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 gone that I felt an internal dying in a way hmm. that um, there was just a lack of meaning deeper deeper meaning in my life and I remember as a child you know at the age of 16 our English teacher would give us a title of an essay and I'd be the only guy that would come back and write a like a small romance novel kind of thing and so, so I had that sort of poetic side to me I, I'd love writing poetry I didn't often share my my poetry but in a way writing some poetry was just a way of exercising that more creative side of me mm. uh, I preferred essay writing I, I think I was I think I still am more skillful at, at writing longer pieces but um, so I, I guess I, it's funny later in life when I went on some vision quests, which we can talk about as well, where you go out into nature and you try and find out what, what, what is your life really about? Um, I realized that, um, for the early part of my career, I was, I was, a, this phrase came into my mind, you were a poet masquerading as a banker. <laughs> came to my mind uh in, and in a way uh i don't know if i was mas masquerading but i had this and i i still have this fire of inferno of creativity inside me that is always wanting to burst out and i felt mm. that uh in a way and it was my projection that the society didn't want that they preferred the banker type you know the the analytical mind um and I spent the second half of my career really trying to tap into that side of me and, and helping others. Um, it's amazing. Uh, even the Dalai Lama said it, that the, 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 the selfish man only thinks about himself, but the wise selfish man thinks about others. Um, and, and so even if I'm being selfish, looking, thinking about others always diminishes my own problems and gives me a, a sense of self-esteem but 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 trying to be of service to your fellow human beings there's something much deeper i think it's it's in our dna people like to say some people are good and some are bad i i, I don't actually believe that i believe innately we're all good and and those that end up doing destructive things probably had you can probably find some trauma in the first seven years of their life that cause that so i believe mm. in cause and effect mm. so in a way i'm quite buddhist uh, I, I guess but um yeah um 
that's uh, I don't know if that's three things, but the um, I like creating things, and that that that's what I did after I had my sort of first what I like to call my first early midlife crisis. I I teamed up with a friend that had done a lot of stuff in Silicon Valley, and um, uh, I became a, an entrepreneur and a venture capitalist, and we were based in Hong Kong and um, decided the most exciting place in 2011, immediately post, it was 2010-11, but immediately post the GFC. California, US was still one of the most exciting places. Uh, I, I didn't want to invest in China because didn't have the lang as good a language skills. Mm -hmm. uh, the rule of law wasn't as clear to me at that point. And I thought America had it in her again to have another uh, another boom. And and besides all that, we wanted to invest in entrepreneurs that are doing good things and had good intentions. Uh, we call it Mind Fund. And uh, and so I went from I guess predicting the future to um, to trying to make the future. Hmm. And um, I think. I learn a lot actually sitting on some boards of, of startups, sitting at the same table um, as, as some top venture capitalists and, and learning about how Silicon Valley came came about. And um, yeah, that was inspiring. And and I still, one day, might, who knows, I might end up having a place there one day. I, I, I've, I do feel very much at home right. there and um, I, I I like the way that um, I think it's fascinating that a source of their creativity comes from uh, things like Burning Man, where mm -hmm. I don't know how many people show up to that now, but like fifty thousand people or so go off into the into the desert and uh, and have a big party for a week. But it, it's it's obviously a lot a lot more profound than just just a party, people. Mm -hmm let their hair down. Um, there, there are these kind of rules of engagement about Burning Man and philosophies and, and a lot of ideas and deep connections come out of that. I also think a lot of foreigners or non-Americans don't understand that the other route of Silicon Valley was very much from a, a big, big source of inspiration came from um, spirituality and philosophy. And uh, there, there's a retreat center down at Big Sur in between San Francisco and LA called uh, Esselin. Hmm. And um, uh, in the 60s, 70s, and even today, um, a lot of great writers, thinkers, philosophers um, would do workshops and, and inspire people there. And um, you'll, you'll see top, top CEOs even today will know a lot of these figures. Steve Jobs was very influenced, as you know, by Indian philosophy and Zen. And um, I'm, I'm sure he was hanging out down at, at Esalen as well. Yeah, it seems uh, like there's a lot of that stuff through the area. I mean, I've done a, a retreat out at Earthrise um, in Petaluma, which was founded by one of the Apollo astronauts, because after his view of Earth as a whole, which most people that leave the planet Earth have this profound sense of unity oneness belonging when you leave the planet and you look back at it um, that he came back bought a big swath of 
property in the 70s and and created a space for people to kind of come together as as humanity yeah an interesting part of the world for sure yeah i think that point you made actually is is really important uh because in fact one of the well-known futurists uh in silicon valley stuart brand he started the whole earth catalog hmm. and his and um his big thing, Steve Jobs said that the whole Earth catalog was one of the most influential things on him as a young man. Um, and it was, a, it was just a really simple magazine, but it, it was quite eclectic. It had articles about spirituality, philosophy, but also a lot of articles about technology and tools that would empower individuals. Uh, but the his deepest motivation seems to be, seemed to be that it was important for humanity to see earth because remember there was a time where we didn't have photos of the earth Not at all, uh, yeah. and um and w when blue marble was as as the earth was first called um was shown i think there was a a mass shift in in consciousness and uh it's to me it's no surprise that the the sort of environmental ecological movement came right. after yeah. the astronauts yeah. came back and we we saw earth and and there's only been like 500 people so far that have had that what they call the oversight effect but in a way by sharing those photos um it in a way influenced us all hmm. I, i'd love to if we could I, I mean it's so easy to charge ahead speaking to a futurist i guess pun pun intended um I, I would love to know more again just back into your own journey i think the concept of a futurist is becoming more and more widely uh, accepted maybe not understood um as what what a futurist is what they do what what your role is the value that you're 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 creating by by the the label whatever right but how is your journey so you talked a bit about going through through the banking and you know uh studying law your time overseas becoming an expatriate kind of traveling the world how, like how does one become a futurist um okay uh well, I mean, like any, in a way, I, I know it, it, my my friend uh, who was a futurist at the at the Pentagon. He reckoned there was only a couple of hundred of us in the world. Who, who knows it? The word futures. What, what I've noticed is, seems the word future appears in a lot more places nowadays. Um, and um, I guess things are changing so quickly. Uh, there are a lot more programs um i dare say more people are calling themselves futurists at, well, at yeah. the moment but yeah. but i you know you can go to a you can go to a, a small number of universities in the world and study future studies uh, there's some good programs university of hawaii was one of the earliest the biggest program in the world um interestingly enough is in taiwan at tamkang university hmm. uh, maybe it's because that that this little island uh, obviously had to think long term and so they created this program singapore's always hired a lot of futurists because lee kuan yu wanted to take a long-term geopolitical view again being a small place uh and um could easily um i mean i remember talking to the top geopolitical mastermind in in singapore who's 
um, Kishore Mababani. Uh, he, uh, he was, I think, at one point president of the UN Security Council. And he told me last year that he was born into a nation that was just like broke, absolutely broke, one of the poorest countries in the mm. world. And look at Singapore now. Um, and I, I, I like to think that that futurists played a, an important part of that mm. because they benchmarked themselves on the Shell Corporation, which was the first company in the world to hire a futurist. But anyway, how do you become a futurist? You can like anything, um, like an economist. Let's let's look at an economist. If I if if I was to say to a young person today that wanted to be an economist, I could say, well, you go and you know study a bachelor's, master's, and a PhD, and and get your academic credentials. But then at some point, you've got to get into the real world, and get your hands dirty, and have life experiences. And there are some economists I knew at banks uh, that had. No, no no academic qualifications and, and they were self-educated mm -hmm. so I like to think my well my path was clearly self-educated I, I, I've not done any of the formal studies at, at universities but um, I think it it's um, I, I like I love the phrase by Schopenhauer life doesn't make sense forwards only backwards and Steve Jobs said something similar but um, it to, to me when I woke up and realized, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a futurist. It, it, it wasn't like I aspire to be a futurist in the future. It, uh, and that's the way a lot of, a lot of us think we, we think, oh, I want to be, I want to become a musician one day. So I better do X, Y, Z. And then finally, so we always put our, our, happiness in a way we put our happiness years uh ahead of us and then we we think okay we have to invest time and do our time and toil away and and then we don't enjoy the mo moment in many cases uh what if you were to just say i am a musician uh and i want to become an even better musician and i'm going to go and meet all the best musicians in the world i'm going to maybe sign up for some courses as, as well so for, for me, it, it kind of happened that way with, with becoming a futurist. And mm. I developed my own style and I went and then met a number of well-known, well-regarded futurists. Uh, and, um, and they seemed to welcome me with open arms. At first, I thought I was a bit of a charlatan, but, um, mm. uh, but I, I, I guess it's probably best to say what what is a what is a futurist? Would would that help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that would lead us nicely into the to the next section of the conversation for sure. Yeah, um, and 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 by the way, I don't want to belittle qualifications because um, I, I I was at a forum yes yesterday with the world two days ago with the World Economic Forum and the it was a dialogue with a bunch of scientists about the future of science leadership and. Um, you know, sometimes I can get on dangerous ground because I, I like to point out that Darwin didn't have a PhD. Freeman Mason, who uh, so Freeman Dyson, um, recently passed away as one of the greatest scientists the last hundred years. He he didn't have a PhD, but I also know some amazingly smart PhDs, and and so so I just think one has to marry experience with pieces of paper you know they 
well, to be honest, the piece of paper doesn't make any difference, but it's how do you use the opportunity of being on this course? So if you are on a PhD, how do you use that to, to, to open your mind, to, to um, expand your knowledge and wisdom? Mm. So um, I guess that's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But um, so I'd never discourage people from taking qualifications, but in today's day and age, there's so many ways to learn whether it's online or um, I dare say, I mean, more than ever, it, people are, are accessible. Mm -hmm. it, you can literally track, I'm pretty confident I can pretty much track most people down in the world via social media or, or via friends. And, uh, you know, whether or not they respond is another thing. But um, if you write a very polite letter to your hero, um, uh, and maybe you don't have one hero. If you're a musician, maybe there are 20 people that you really respect. I'm pretty sure if you're a little bit innovative and you're genuine and polite, you could probably get a conversation with mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one of them. Um, but um, if you go on Wikipedia and look up what is a futurist, it will probably say something like um, someone who systematically explores the future um, uh, and includes consultants to corporations to strategists in the military etc etc and 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 include science fiction writers i i like keeping it a broad church because that way it invites the most creativity and innovation mm. i think when people close it down like they do with sometimes with economists and scientists and say oh a futurist is someone that has a PhD in futurism, future studies. Right. Then, I think we've lost it because the in my mind, the f f one role of futurist is 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 to be the kind of wacky guys thinking about what's what's possible. Yeah. Um, some people say the grandfather of futurism was um, um, H. G. Wells, who um, in 1903 made this talk. I think it was called Discovery of the Future Royal Institution in Mayfair, London. And um, he said that, um, that in a way, H.G. Wells, he was a science fiction writer, also made some, yeah, made some pretty bold and accurate predictions about the future. Um, he said one day there might be professors or should be professors that teach the future like we have professors teaching history today. And of course that, that came about. But in a way, I, I think futurism could be a marriage of science fiction where you've got the more imaginative, creative side. Because uh, some of these guys are just imagining stuff before there's any science to confirm whether it's even possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then you have other futurists that are only predicting a few years out, or, or sorry, only discussing issues a few years out. And, and they've gone and interviewed hundreds of scientists like Michio Kaku's sometimes on on TV. Um, he, he said he's a quantum physicist, but sometimes calls himself a futurist. But he, in in his book, I can't remember the name of. Uh, there's one book where he talks about the next hundred years, and he interviews like hundreds of scientists, and then based on their his interviews, he talks about what 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 will happen, what could mm. happen. Um, 
but it could be a marriage between sci-fi and military strategy because in the Cold War, Herman Kahn developed scenario analysis and his job was to think the unthinkable, as he, he would say. And mm. um, many futurists uh, would look at, say, four big scenarios that uh, uh, the military or indeed a corporation might face and then zoom in into incredible minutiae, what if? Because if you zoom in in those four scenarios, you could assign probability to them and say scenario B is the most likely. But at least if you thought about the details, even if scenario C happened, which you only assigned a 10% probability, at least you thought about it. So mm -hmm. when it happens, you can go into an, an action plan. Uh, so um, the first, um, so, so Herman Kahn was at Rand Corporation in Santa Monica. Um, and of course the military, the, the, probably the military has been doing scenario analysis ever since there were militaries, but um, in a in a way, in the same light, there there have been futurists for hundreds of right. thousands right. of years. In my mind, they might not have used the word futurist. Exactly. You know, the you know, the Chinese had their sort of philosopher advisors uh, who might talk military strategy on the one hand, talk about intrigue at court, advise the the, the emperor on hmm. uh, various uh, I issues. Um, we all know the Russian Tsar had uh, uh, Rasputin as a as an advisor. I don't know if he was a, a futurist, but the, there's all there's always been people that are trying to look afar in in into the distance. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. They talk about uh, some of these guys might be called seers, but I obviously. I, I wouldn't use that word because it sounds a bit too new agey and, and a, a bit sort of a, a woo-woo, but think about the word seer. It means seer. Uh, and, and to me, one role of a futurist is just to see with some clarity. Hmm. It's not about how much knowledge you have. We, we can all access huge amounts of knowledge and data. So how do you see that data? And um, Interesting. That's where, where I could, in a moment, talk about why, for me, Zen and meditation and things like that has really enhanced my ability to, to see things. Yeah. Um, but 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 before I do that, I, I'm, when people say what is a futurist, I always uh, kind of like to put a big asterisk because if you ask ten economists what 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 are they meant, what's an economist, what do you do, um, you might get ten different answers. Yeah, exactly. And, I, I, and for a moment, I don't want to say I represent all futurists. Some some futurists ref, really do not like the word predict or forecast. Right. They they like the word anticipate, anticipation, mm -hmm. and and that's why they they'll talk about scenarios because they don't want to say I predict. Yeah, this, this. is going to happen. Um, that's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, if I, I can, I'm, I'm just to finish off that thought. I'm stupid enough to occasionally say, look. Uh, if you put a gun against my head, this is this is what I predict will will happen. But um, I like to give people the context, the caveats, the nuances, and if I'm wrong, let's think about these other scenarios. So, so one of my biggest roles, I believe, is just to open people's minds. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, what's coming up for me as you're, as you're talking through that and I love it. There's so much to, that we could unpack there. Um, is around, yeah, I mean, the topic of this podcast is really around change and positive change. Like how does one go around creating positive change in themselves, in their communities or organizations in the wider world? And I'm wondering, you know, it, to tie that, the role of the futurist, how does that influence positive change? How have you found through your experience of the work that you've been doing um, that that it that you've seen the impact of that uh, have a positive positive effect. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess I need to actually go back and answer your last question properly <laughs> in, in twenty seconds succinctly. But, but so, what is it I actually do today? Um, is I, I give talks around the world at different international conferences, sometimes finance. Uh, blessed with speaking at the United Nations last year, a new initiative called Resilience Frontiers. And then sometimes I pick some sort of slightly more out there talks. Uh, I did a talk in Bangkok recently at a mind, body, spirit fair or festival. That was that was nice because I had less, less constraints. Um, so I give talks, but I then uh, consult and coach leaders on how to deal with change, how to embrace change and act as a sounding board for the future. And the coaching often goes from a bit of strategy to what some people might describe as, as life coaching. But um, I, I hate, when I was in this group of scientists two days ago, everyone was saying, I'm an expert in X, Y, Z, I'm trained in this. And I'm really don't like the word. I don't mind if you call yourself an expert, but I don't really don't like calling myself an expert in in anything. Um, I'm more of a generalist, and uh, polymath sounds too precocious, so I don't I don't use that word. Um, so, uh, but if if I was to say I'm an expert in anything, I, I guess it's change. Um, and um, what what gets me excited and passionate is helping helping people not be afraid of change in a way mm. well that and comes back to one of those buckets that you first talked about of you know who, at the core of who you are helping others helping and that's interesting to not be afraid not be and that's not to say I, i'm fear, not sorry. always yeah. fearless i mean it's not to say i don't have periods of fear myself but but um I just love inspiring others to realize they have such a wealth of inner resources, mm. absolute amazing creativity, genius that they can deploy. And in fact, the best time to deploy it is when the world is in flux rather than in, in a, a stable period. Right. So that's where I feel like I, I can have the most impact. Um, so yeah, I go on stage and I say, look, X, Y, Z might happen. Uh, but that's that's really the first part of my work. The second half is is really in trying to inspire people to to find those capabilities, resources, uh, and and get out there and and, and do something. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that's the more impactful side of the work. Right, right. I love that, and it kind of comes back to what you're talking about before of that the reframing that you experienced of um, you know moving into that dreamer state, living on the fringe, 
you know, being, being out there with the thought. And I think, you know, from the work that, that we do at Bridge, that's a big part of it. It's about the dreamist. And then how do you move into the realist as well to make action happen in the real world? And maybe we can tie this into what you're talking about with your exploration of Zen and these vision quests as, as you're talking about it and, and how that, the importance of that reframing in relation to change and I guess maybe from the fringe through the, through experimentation or maybe unconventional um, practices, how, how that influences positive change as well. Yeah. Uh, where do I start with that? <laughs> yes. it, 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 it's a big subject. That's a whole podcast. Yeah. But, um, um, funnily enough, the, the first futurist that worked in a corporation they say was Pierre Wack who worked at Shell and um, of course he was known to have quite an analytical mind worked at what um, you know nowadays oil companies aren't so uh, popular but um, up until fairly re recently um, you know these the, these are highly reputable um, companies and um, he um, and he wrote a series of articles in Harvard Business Review about future thinking and scenarios, etc. He they, they say it was because of his analysis that um, Shell was able to avoid the oil shocks. They were mm. able to anticipate it and plan and react, respond accordingly. Um, but what they don't often talk about is actually he was a big meditator. He in the Shell head office, he would burn incense in his office uh preceding the oil shock someone told someone that knew him told me that he went out into the desert in a tent and meditated for weeks um and so to me he he kind of represents uh the the what really what i aspire to do and and it's to have the disciplined side the analytical mind and yes, tick that box and, and that box that I, I had to use, that mind that I had to use when I was an investor. But the, I think the word intuition has, has in our modern society, mm. up until recently, it's been a bad word. Like fund manager friends of mine would say to me, well, this is my intuition, but for God's sake, don't quote me um, because yeah. I can't ever talk about my intuition to... To my clients you know there has to be mathematics and etc cetera, etc cetera. but mm. i think people are now starting to realize that intuition is a, a form of intelligence and i i believe it's the highest form of intelligence so i i, I believe in sort of gathering data from my other senses using my intellect but um i i think the the intuition is that the highest form of of intelligence and i'm trying to think where I was, was going with all of this, but I, I kind of think this kind of time. around reframing and yeah. And going into like your, your experiment, the question was around like the, the kind of the experimentation that you've done um, and how that plays a positive, a positive role in change. Yeah. I mean, uh, mine, um, I wish I'd was, uh, had been so noble that I woke up one day and thought, now is a time to become a, a better person and I'm, I need to go and learn meditation and this and that. My mind came from just this deep 
inner pain and, and suffering mm. that, that it was like there's something wrong. Mm. Um, like I tick all the boxes uh, in a TED, TEDx talk I did uh, a, lot, a while ago in Hong Kong. I, it was like um, I had the uh, the German car, the Swiss bank of bank account, the Italian clothes, and the the beautiful Korean wife. But something inside was wrong. Where um, did you feel that? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about your intuition, where where was that coming up for you in your body? Oh, the heart. Yeah. The heart, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Just a, sad, a sadness that now my life is not going in the direction it should. Um, and now, now I, I again reframe in that it's like, well, it was a totally necessary part. If if I'd have not gone through uh, the world of finance and experienced the laboratory of consciousness that I did, there's no way I would have understood some of these deep philosophical texts that I now grapple with today. Right. Um, in fact, I guess I'm pretty sure in my case not everyone's if i'd have gone to university to study philosophy and and even got a phd in it uh, i'd be clueless but the reality was I, I was in pain and i needed i needed some medicine and so all i cared about it that there wasn't like i needed intellectual stimulation from philosophical texts i need to put a fire out um and um, I need the fire engines. And, mm. you know, if your fire engine showed up at your house and some guy got a, an academic with a, a PhD in, in fire management came out and started talking to you whilst your house is burning down, you probably want to kill him. Um, so a very interesting I, image, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so in my case, I, was, I started doing Zen meditation. I started reading all these sort of self help self whatever books and, and read really widely mm. and, and did lots of things to 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 find um to find answers to find happiness to learn how to control the control the mind um and uh yeah it was it's been a, a great gift mm. uh that that now it does it isn't just used in my personal life but is very useful for my um my my professional life i mean i could spend hours talking about what i actually did i mean zen was in a way a gateway to a lot a lot of them since since then i i've i've done you know i i, I quite happily say you might see me in a in a temple mosque church uh, or wherever i'm hanging out with high performance athletes trying to learn their their psychology mm. um I'm happy to talk to scientists and sages and 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 all sorts. So I'm literally I, I spent I spent a few years whilst whilst doing my venture capital work and and some other things. I I I, I had the flexibility to to travel a lot, and so I did lots of different retreats and got mm -hmm. to meet lots of fascinating people and and. Yeah, you know, I was probably in the last ten years. I've probably spent a month on retreat every year, trying to doing um, the work. Answers. Yeah, yeah. It, it, for our listeners, it, that would be interesting in the gateway to to Zen philosophy. Is there anything that you could recommend as a as a nice entry point for that? Um, kind of 
that could frame it in a way that's digestible and in interactive yeah well zen zen was good for me in that it it took away a lot of dogma and it goes back to the point i was saying about seeing mm. and opening the mind mm. they, they say um in zen keep keep your mind as as wide as the sky but use it like the pin of a needle and um you know to me meditation is not about focus concentration it's about those two dimensions to the mind so some people like like to lock themselves in a room or a or, or sit by a beautiful body tree and um just cut themselves off from the world and i sometimes say to beginner meditators that's all very well and, it, and i love those moments where you can sit you know by a river running Bubbling water brook, and there's yeah. a body tree behind you but then what if someone shows up with a chainsaw and cuts the body tree down then then what's going to happen you're going to freak out and maybe want to punch the perpetrator and then what's happened to your med meditative state uh because the chainsaw is life and and so the 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 idea of meditation is not to cut off the world is actually to to expand and become the world um which um Hmm. Maybe sounds a bit wacky, but it it really isn't to cut cut yourself off. Yeah, there's there's lots of research that says if you sort of sit quietly every day for three months, suddenly you're, you're you know, because of neuroplasticity, etc., it has all these huge benefits and serotonin and blah blah blah. But we're only really at the beginning of Western science investigating the power of meditation, hmm. and the idea we've figured it all out already is is a bit absurd when you have traditions that i've been exposed to that have been around for thousands of years and right. I, I i i've gone just because i lived in asia you know perhaps if i lived somewhere else something else would have happened to me but when i had my crisis the the, the the first available technology was an ancient tradition that's been around for thousands of years called zen and i got to meet some wonderful teachers i went up to the himalayas and met people from other traditions but um but for me zen really is is what one of the key things about zen is to let go of the small i the small me hmm. so we we use the we use these words i my me mine constantly throughout the day maybe if you add them up it could be the word one uses the most in a day right but if you ask so what is that i most of us are totally clueless um or haven't even thought about it and and in a way zen points to exploring that and uh, ultimately and in zen one should never give the answer to someone because really it's a voyage of self-discovery right um, so saying to someone if you meditate this will happen is, is totally the wrong the wrong advice but um nonetheless uh one feel one can feel a sense of a bigger eye hmm. when you sit long enough and you ask what am i that, that's a typical mantra in 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 zen what am i what am i what am i what am i right and eventually your sense of self starts to shift so instead of this very narrow 
and, and maybe the barriers between me and what I think is someone else they somewhat dissolve. Right. Um, so that's one 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 big thing in Zen. Um, hmm. But from much more practical terms, Zen is is about letting go of ideas. Right. Letting go back of to paradigms. that reframing kind of yeah on yeah yeah yeah. Nah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. Um, I'm curious, you know, keeping on the, the topic of change is like from your experience and your relationship to change, as you were talking about, um, like what, is, what would you say? What, what's one myth that, that you know that's out there about change that, that you'd like to bust or kind of share your life's journey from to, to reframe? Um, well... I, I guess one thing would be that uncertainty is a bad thing. Mm. So, the, um, I mean, the, the word VUCA, I think, came out of the U.S. military, but was particularly embraced by the Navy SEALs. VUCA, meaning volatile, uncertain, complex, um, ambiguous, and these are considered like bad, bad, bad words in in society, like ah, because we all, you know. F- we're kind of trained nowadays to think, okay, well, you know, we've got to get that amazing nine to five job or whatever it is and get, get, get a mortgage, get the house, get the car and, right. and then get the partner and live happily ever after. And, um, actually change the, as the cliche goes, change is obviously inevitable. Um, it doesn't go in straight lines. That's another myth. Um, we go through periods where, it kind of looks like manageable change where things are going in straight lines or plateauing. And then we go into periods of nonlinear change, which are now, um, you know, the word exponentials become super popular. Everyone yeah. in Silicon Valley, like talking about exponential, we used to, in the investment world, we used to just call it nonlinear change, but it's exactly the same thing. And it's what you're seeing with coronavirus, like, like the number of cases double each day uh for the first few days the numbers seem really small but then suddenly a month later Hmm. the entire country like italy is in lockdown Um, so that's why you have to be careful of linear change and this is why this is why if you're involved in the business of change like a futurist we have to look at we have to look at the fringe we have to look at the anecdotes we have to look at things when they're really small because if something doubles every day it suddenly becomes a massive force uh, uh, that people haven't noticed. So yeah. that's why I have to hang out with them. Um, well, this is my excuse anyway for hanging <laughs> out with cra- crazy fringe thinkers. It's also a, a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, but this this is something else about change that it's it's not linear. And and this is why economists often struggle because they draw often draw straight lines. Hmm. It's so interesting. I mean, that comes right back to what you're talking about history, right? Of like, history is not linear, the cyclical nature of it. And and I mean, if we pull those together, um, how does one, how does one break free from that linear process to create new possibilities or new futures, if you will? Um, Yeah. how, How does one break a cycle? to create some positive change. 
uh, well, they could come and pay me loads of money and I can <laughs> teach them. Um, alternatively, probably the, uh, no, I shouldn't say the better route, uh, uh, sh should be self-promoting. Uh, I, I think, I, I think things that that increase the agility of, of your mind really helps. Mm. So that, that does go back to. Could you tell me more about that? What that, what that means for the listeners? The agility well, of the mind? I think being able to, I mean, the, not to go on, on 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 about meditation and Zen, but it's it's not just the act of meditation; it's the act of being able to drop uh, beliefs and paradigms is is really important. That unlearning aspect, if you will, the un, yeah, the unlearning. Hmm. Um, you know, one of the one of the greatest um, futurists of the last century, Alvin Toffler. Um, and they just, actually Toffler Associates still exists. I know the, the current CEO, a wonderful woman, um, but he wrote a series of books that um, some people might find a bit dated now, but actually still a lot of relevance in them. But he said the greatest gift skill of the 21st century uh, is gonna be the ability to un unlearn and relearn hmm. essentially, um, I'm paraphrasing. It, it's not to learn how to code basically which I think is an important skill and, and learning about AI is important. And for some people learning about quantum computing uh, is, could be really powerful. But I, I think behind that, the ability to, to un, unlearn. And we, we, um, we become so fixated by our ideas. And, and you know, a, a, a fund manager once said to me, Benjamin, one day, uh, you'll have to make a decision. Do you want to be right or do you want to make money in this business? Uh, and you could replace money by a whole bunch of ideas like, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> um, uh, do you want to be right or do you want to find truth? Because most people want to mm. be right. Uh, and why do they want to be right? Because they is, their ego actually thinks that their belief is them so that's why nowadays with all this divisiveness you see in certain societies in the world you know the uk us being prime examples if uh, if i engage with someone that's in the opposite camp of me i can't be friends with them because the the ego is attaching to my ideas what what if we were to engage with each other and it's actually well i i have some ten tentative ideas I have some tentative hypotheses about the world, but they could be wrong. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's quite healthy to bump up against people that have different views. So I think a really important skill is to let go. Yeah, for God's sake, let go of your ideas. Mm. Like, and, and, and a good exercise to do is go back through your own history and map out your views on any given subject. Okay, so I, I'm going to pause you right here because we're, I mean, we're almost at time and I think this is, we're kind of segueing into this. So if there was kind of th three recommendations, pieces of advice that, that you'd like to give for people, and I feel like you're, you're almost going into the, the first one here, um, to create positive change in themselves, their families, communities, organizations, or the wider system, society, what would they be? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess first let's as as we're there, this this agility of mind, letting go of 
of beliefs, op openness, um, and looking at beliefs as a, as a, like a scientist, like true science. When people often talk about science now, they're not talking about science. They talk about science like it's fact. A yeah. scientist said this, that's science. That's absolute baloney. Science is about destroying old ideas to push back the, the, the frontiers of human knowledge and insight. And then we have a new tentative hypothesis, but that could be proven wrong. And I love it. a success totally. in science is destroying old ideas. It's not attaching to your old ones. It's such a, a misbelief. And Zen is exactly the same. And, and I'd, I'd suggest that everyone leads their lives scientifically, actually. Uh, in a way, what is spiritual is scientific, uh, in, in my mind. So that's one thing. And it's a lot less stressful. You can have more friends. You can be a, a Trump supporter and, and be friends with a Democrat and vice versa. You, you dare say you might actually learn from each other and, and, be, and be friends, etc. But um, you also have more compassion hmm. for others because you, you, it's um, less dualistic. Hmm this black and white thinking is a big problem at the moment and uh this is where we can learn not just from eastern philosophy philosophy but from our own philosophy uh, it, it's never it's not always been so dualistic black and white in in the west you know yeah. shakespeare said uh there's no such thing as right or wrong it your mind maketh it so uh and and there's huge um, wisdom in the Shakespearean texts. Mm. Uh, that's why none of us understood them at school because our teachers don't understand them <laughs> because they, they haven't done the inner work because they're like really profound. In fact, right. they say Shakespeare didn't write the Shakespearean texts. They're actually written by Sir Francis Bacon, who was a Rosicrucian and had access to all the 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 the, yeah, the ancient knowledge. Mm. Um, but anyway, that's another that's another podcast, podcast right there. Yeah. Um, um, so we've got secondly, this this concept, yeah, of, of unlearning, of letting go, of um, that. Uh, would you call it the active? No, the the mindset. Um, well, agility of agility mind. of mind. There you um, go. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, in in Japanese Zen, they talk about no mind. Right. That's it, having like going into a state where you're not thinking at all, hmm. and you're totally connected to the universe. Um, so that's the extreme end of it. Uh, second, mm. second important thing is find find your purpose. Find and your per. I like to say, um, well, find your song. You know, what's your song? Mm. What's the song you want to sing in this world? Uh, because rather than think of some some distant goal that you want to achieve, how about just finding who you really are? now and not having a 10-year plan to become happy but access it now you know Carl, um joseph campbell who who wrote the the hero's journey love amazing yeah. like when i coach people I, I i i get my clients actually to watch some joseph campbell videos at the beginning because i i think a map the map of your future should well, there shouldn't be a map of your future in a way. Um, it's it's you're going on an, an adventure, an odyssey. Um, change is dynamic, um, so stop having these like very linear plans um, and embrace life. And um, Joseph Campbell uh, said, basically said, 
the the privilege of a lifetime is to be who you truly are hmm. and if you access what you you know what is your song if you find that um the other stuff will fall into place it, it doesn't mean you can't go and be an amazing consultant at bridge or it doesn't mean you can't go and work at the cutting edge of science or build a billion dollar company or become an athlete um but but connecting to yourself is really important that's why i think vision quests going out into into the wild very conducive to to finding out who you who you truly are and i love how that kind of that senselessness my understanding of purpose is of you know it is a more of letting go of that ego it's not you're not doing things for yourself you're doing things that feed you energy in service of others of 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 a bigger kind of that world that world view of we started our conversation of looking back at the planet the blue marble love it yeah hmm. i think that might be the third really what you just said it, in a way, all three are interconnected, as they should be. Uh, and funnily enough, most people's deeper song, let's say, the song they want to sing, in, in my case, invariably, when if they go deep enough, it involves being in service of the greater community. So it could be to be an amazing singer, but that can make lots of people happy. You know, how many times have, have you heard a song and you've you've cried with happiness or whatever, and it's opened up your heart and it's it's helped you. Mm -hmm. um, it could be whatever. It could even be a you know, it's become a really good lawyer. But you you could help lots of people, and in your job as a lawyer, you can actually you might have someone distraught who's going through a really difficult period of their life. You can do that job with compassion. Mm. Um, so I think the third. The, the second and third finding your song finding your purpose uh, and then explicitly trying to be of service it is is going to help you navigate change and navigate this crazy time we're living in as as a essentially an old world is breaking down in, in front of our very eyes um it's bigger than the fourth industrial revolution I, i'm involved in the world economic forum we use the word fourth industrial revolution I love the work that Weth's doing, but I, the only thing I have a slight problem with is is the, the notion of the fourth industrial revolution. I think we're actually seeing the end of the industrial age and we're moving into a post-industrial age. And one day someone will coin a word and uh, I've I've got some suggestions like we, we move from this industrial civilization to an ecological right. civilization and that's a whole mean... other podcast <laughs> absolutely absolutely i hear you too yeah i think these topics are for future podcasts but yeah. um all i want to say is it's an exciting time to be alive and um, mm. um uh, if you have those three anchors in your life i'm sure there are others but uh it's gonna help a hell of a lot to navigate the the infernos that uh, coming from left, right, and all over the place at yeah. the moment. And there's lots of wonderful things going on at, at the same time. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's so much more. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to speaking to you again soon. We're really um, very fortunate at Bridge Hong Kong to have you as a, as a futurist in residence with us. Um, 
And I think for the listeners out there, we're really going to try looking to endeavor to, to create a, a more regular catch up with you where we can hear your thoughts. We can delve into a, a whole series of, of these other topics that we're just scratching the surface now. Beyond that, um, is there anything else that's going on in your life that you'd like to, to share with our listeners? Do a little plug before we wrap it up. No, well, the, the only the, the best place to follow me is just on my website. Nowadays, I'm trying to centralize it, benjaminjbutler.com. I write a, a blog there. Uh, it's not a peer-reviewed, um, scientifically bulletproof uh, uh, bits of writing. It's, it is my blog, but it, it's try try and catch where I am, what's going on in my head. And um, very interesting. Looking, Your latest one about the the end of the world, I find is, is fascinating as well. So yeah. Uh, th- yeah. Th- thank you. That's the best place to follow me. Oh, hopefully in a few months time, I'll start plugging the, the book that I've been writing for probably about 45 years. But um, um, I've got a I've got a publisher for a book and I, I really need to cr- crank that out a- ASAP. But uh, yeah, no, just I'd just say benjaminjbutler.com and, and hopefully we'll 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 get some articles out on the on the bridge website as well. So uh, go to um, the bridge partnership website. Yep. Great. And we'll put all of the notes and and the links and the references in the in the show notes below. Um Benjamin, absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Uh, really looking forward, like I said, to catching up with you again soon and, and having a chat about all of the potential conversations about the future we can have awesome thanks scott looking forward to uh, some of our regular check-ins cheers thanks a lot thanks again for checking out the bridge breakthrough podcast i'm your host scott taylor I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Benjamin today. Um, fascinating futurist. You can find more about him at benjaminjbutler.com. He's got a great blog. He'll also be writing some thought leadership uh, for us at Bridge Partnerships. To find out more about Bridge Partnership and the work that we do around the world, you can always check out us at bridge-partnership.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you like this, um, please share the word. Let people know that we are putting this out into the world. That's always greatly appreciated. Hope you took something away from this episode, and we'll see you next time.